The Old Testament lesson for today is from Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. This can be found on page 19 of your pew Bible. This story of God's command to Abraham to sacrifice his only son is shocking upon first reading. However, when we consider it in the context of the gospel, we see that it prefigures the sacrifice of God's only son, Jesus Christ, who died that we may have eternal life. A reading from Genesis chapter 22, beginning with the first verse. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw that the place from, all, from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, his, on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and he said, Here, I, here am I, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for, for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they, so they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound his, Isaac his son, who laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of, of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. May God add his blessing to the reading of his holy word. Thanks be to God. There was a young man who grew up very active in the church. In fact, he was the pastor's kid. And week after week, he heard his dad preaching sermons from the pulpit on Sunday. But Monday through Saturday, he was around his friends at school and watching television and movies and getting to know the worldview of the culture around him. And over the years, he began to notice a disconnect between what he was hearing from the pulpit and what he was hearing out in culture. And he was beginning to get more and more uncomfortable with what he was hearing his dad preach on Sundays. In one Sunday when he was a teenager, his dad stood up to preach, and the text was Genesis chapter 22, Abraham placing his own son on the altar. And this teenager heard it, and he had just had enough. He was troubled. 
He was offended. He walked away from the faith. And if I'm honest with myself, I realize there's something understandable about what that son was feeling that day. This is a troubling story, isn't it? I asked more than one of you over the last week to pray for me as I was preparing the sermon. How am I going to preach on Abraham and Isaac? This is a hard text. It's offensive, really, upon first reading. But what we're going to discover today as we look at it again with fresh eyes is that if we are offended by it upon hearing it, we may be offended by the wrong thing. And that if we read it in its historical context, and if we read it as a foreshadowing of the truth of the gospel, that is God's love for us, we will see the absolute beauty, the life-changing beauty of this story. First, I want to give a little bit of historical context, which might make some sense of the story we heard. In the time of the writing of this story, there were some other religions that prevailed in the region. There were some people who worshipped the god Molech, other people who worshipped the god Baal. That word Baal might sound familiar to those of you who are used to reading the Old Testament. Both Moloch worshippers and Baal worshippers believed that their god required them to sacrifice their firstborn son. This horrific practice would take place. If they had a son, they would place the son on an altar and they would kill that child, hoping that Molech or Baal would reward their sacrifice with better crops, with material provision. The twist in the story of the God of Abraham that would have sounded different than those other stories is that in the story of Abraham and Isaac, God provided a substitute, a ram, so that Abraham would not have to sacrifice his son. This was a different story than the prevailing religious stories of the day, different than Moloch and different than Baal. Perhaps people circulated news. Did you hear the God of Abraham? provided a substitute. He didn't have to kill his son. The God of the Bible is different than the gods of the culture around them. You know, different centuries, different cultures bring different reactions to the biblical text. This happens a lot in the Bible. A century will go by or even a decade will go by and somebody will pick up the Bible and read something and they'll be offended by something that the previous century or decade enjoyed. I'll give you an example from the New Testament. A lot of people know Ephesians chapter 5. There's this famous verse in Ephesians chapter 5. It goes like this. Wives, submit to your husbands. Do you know this one? Wives, submit to your husbands. It's offensive. People are very offended by that. Wives, submit to your husbands. But at the time of the writing of Ephesians chapter 5, people would have heard that chapter and been offended by something else. Do you know what it says right after wives, submit to your husbands? It says, husbands, Love your wives like Christ loved the church, laying down his life for her. This was a radical idea in the ancient world. Women had absolutely no rights. Women were property of men in the ancient world. It goes on in Ephesians chapter 5 to say, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. This was radically progressive in the first century when Ephesians was written. We, in 2021, get offended when it says, wives submit to your husbands. 
But the original hearers would have been offended with this notion that husbands would honor their wives' bodies, that their bodies might have rights. That was a surprising idea in the first century. Ephesians chapter 6 similarly says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. Everybody in the ancient world knew that. Servants have to obey their masters. But then it goes on to say, Masters, treat your servants as you would treat Christ. And it says, Stop your threatening. That was a radical notion in the first century. It also says in Ephesians chapter 6, Children, obey your parents. But then it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. In the first century, that would have been a radical notion. Women, servants, children are to be honored. People would have been offended when they heard that in the first century. Whereas we're offended on the other side of the idea of wives submitting to their husbands. You get the picture I'm trying to paint here? That depending on what culture you're in, God's word think about this with me, it stands outside, it comes from outside of all human cultures and all centuries. If it's got divine authorship and divine inspiration, if it's speaking a word that comes from outside of all the cultures, then every culture along the timeline of history will be offended by or blessed by different things. To me, it proves the divine authorship of the scriptures. But to go back to the story of Abraham and Isaac, we are troubled by the idea of a father bringing his son to the altar. That surprises us. But it would have surprised the early listeners of this story that God provided a substitute, that Isaac got to live. In fact, if we think that the God of the Bible wants us to sacrifice our children based on this story, we would be wrong. In fact, in the Torah, in the law of God, God strictly forbids child sacrifice. Leviticus 18, verse 21, for example, and a few other places in Deuteronomy. In Psalm 106, God is describing a time in the Israelites' history when some of them were tempted to sacrifice their children to Moloch or to Baal, hoping for material prosperity. God is super ticked off about that in Psalm 106. You should read it. He says, don't sacrifice your children. So the surprise, the twist in the story is that God provides a substitute. It points to what would happen in the New Testament, which we'll get to in just a moment. I've heard this scripture preached many times over the years and taught. And what a lot of teachers are tempted to do with this story of Abraham and Isaac is turn it into basically a moralism. We've been saying throughout this series in Genesis that we're trying not just to teach moralism, but we're trying to convey the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the moralistic reading of this story would go something like this. The preacher would talk about Abraham and Isaac and then turn to the congregation and say, are you willing to sacrifice something you love for God? Are you willing to prove your faith? And that's an important question. It's an important question to say, what am I willing to leave on the altar to give up to God trusting him? That is a good moralistic question for all of us to ask, but it's not the whole story. It's not the whole message, and thank goodness that it's not, because honestly, when I think about that question, am I willing to give up the things that I love and give them to God on some days of the week? The answer is no, I'm not. In my fleshly impulse, I'm tempted to grip onto things and not release them to God. 
which is why we need the rest of the story. We need where this story points to. It's not just amoralism. There's something else going on here. So I want us to hear these verses once again. Verses 13 and 14. Hear these verses knowing that these other gods in the ancient world required sacrifice of the firstborn son. Hear this. And Max, I want you to put that image on the screen. I want you to see the, the surprise of the story with me. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I was reading this story at the dinner table a few nights ago in the children's Bible. We got to this part of the story, and my daughter, who loves animals, she said, Aw, poor ram. (laughs) And I love the fact that she said that because she was starting to get the point that this innocent ram died so that Isaac might live. And that begins pointing us to the truth, the love story of the gospel. Listen to what first Peter describes about Jesus on the day he went to the altar, the day he went to the cross to die. It says this, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. God provided a substitute. Jesus died on the altar so that we would not have to. According to the Bible, the wages of sin is death. All of the sinfulness in all of our hearts and in all of our actions deserve a consequence. The consequence is death, according to God's justice. But the surprise of the story, just like it is in the story of Abraham and Isaac, is that God provides a substitute, a loving, willing substitute, who would die in our place. Now, there's a difference in the story. Whereas Isaac was, just picture this with me, picture Isaac walking up that mountain with the wood carrying on his back. And in verse 7, he asks in what I'm assuming is a troubled tone when he says, Behold the fire and the wood, Father, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now compare that with Jesus who walked with wood on his back as well. When he carried his own cross, he was going willingly. He knew where the sacrifice would come from. He knew that it was his own body that would bear the consequence of all of our sins. And Jesus, God's own son, God's firstborn son, is the substitute, is the provision that we need for salvation. When we realize this, when we realize that God has done something for us that we can't do for ourselves, 
that God has loved us so completely that he laid down his own life for us, we might begin to realize the true offense of the story. Where we thought we were troubled when we first heard the story, we now realize there may be another kind of offense that often pops up at this part in the story as it did for my daughter as we sat around the dining room table. Oh, poor ram. You might say, oh, an innocent man died in my place. Furthermore, we realize that God has done something for us we cannot do for ourselves, which means we cannot earn salvation. Because of the human heart and our desire to achieve things, sometimes we are offended by that. Let me illustrate the point by telling you about one of the characters in the C.S. Lewis book, The Great Divorce. I don't know if you've read The Great Divorce recently. If you haven't, I recommend it again. The Great Divorce is this fictional tale of a, a bus load, like a city bus full of souls. And the bus makes its way towards heaven. And it stops outside heaven, in the outskirts of heaven. And the people, the souls, come off the bus one at a time. And they interact with, basically, tour guides, taking them around the outskirts of heaven. And they have all kinds of questions. And each of the characters who comes off the bus has one reason or another where they refuse to go in to heaven. They have all their reasons. And there's this one character called the big man. The big man. He was at a very big deal while he was on earth. Lots of achievements, lots of accomplishments, lots of rewards. And he's learning from the tour guide that in order to get into heaven, you have to humble yourself. You don't have to achieve something. You have to receive God's grace. And this really bothers the big man. In fact, it bothers him so much, he learns that the tour guide who's showing him around heaven, that he was a convicted murderer while on earth. He served his time in prison, but he was forgiven by God. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross paid the eternal penalty for his sins. And the big man is very offended that this guy gets to go into heaven. He says, don't you know that I've achieved a lot of things? And he refuses to go in because he says, I won't take anything that I didn't earn. And he sadly gets back on the bus and goes back the other direction. That man understood the offense, the true offense of the gospel. That God has done something for us we cannot do for ourselves. If we make Genesis 22 all about what are you willing to sacrifice for God, we will miss this larger point of what God has sacrificed for us. His very own life. He paid the price. He's given us entrance into salvation, into eternity. You might say, really, is it that simple? Is salvation that simple? It almost sounds foolish. And the New Testament is aware of the offense of the gospel. For example, in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, it says this, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, to that man who refused to go into heaven. It sounded like folly. I can't earn it. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is the power of God that Jesus Christ died in our place, that God's only son went to the altar on our behalf, the surprise, the substitute who came in so that we wouldn't have to pay the consequences. That is the power of God for salvation. It's the basic gospel. And it's a picture of how much God loves us. 
the young man, the pastor's kid. He wandered off, left the faith. But the story continued. One day, he came back to the fold. He came back to faith. In fact, he received a call, just like his father, to become a pastor. And wouldn't you know, he was called to give his ordination sermon, his installation sermon. And what was the text that was assigned to him? (laughs) Genesis chapter 22. And he preached it as the power of God, not as folly, which he perceived it to be when he was a teenager. What changed in the in-between years in this young man's life? Well, I don't know. I only know those two details of the story. But what I have to guess is that he was overwhelmed by the unconditional love of God. I love the fact that our baptized baby this morning, his name means God is gracious because God's graciousness, God's kindness leads us to repentance. It's this love. I would imagine this young man's parents just kept their arms open wide for him like the prodigal father, not judging him, but receiving him home in God's timing. The overwhelming love of God as described in John 3, verse 16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We have a story to tell. As Walker reminded us in his testimony, our vision is to know Christ and make him known. And if you think about it in the context of what we've seen today, the story that we have to share with the world around us, well, it's an offensive one, isn't it? But as we share our story, as we preach the gospel, as we make Christ known, let us consider this. Let our hearers be offended by nothing but the gospel. Let there be nothing in our witness, nothing in our testimony that would make them walk away from the faith other than the overwhelming love, the overwhelming unconditional grace of Jesus Christ that when they learn that there's nothing they can do to earn their way into heaven, that they would be so overwhelmed by that, so offended by that, that they would understand their place in God's family, that God provided a substitute even for them. This is our call. This is our charge. I love that Walker called us to that. You did a good job, Walker. He said, it's not about me anymore. What are you doing out there? That was great. We do have this part of our vision to make Christ known. The singular, powerful, overwhelming love of God. In the event of what happened on the cross, when God willingly went to the altar so that we wouldn't have to pay the price for our sins. Let's go share that offensive story of God's love to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. Amen.